Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast, your go-to source for insights and strategies in the HVAC, plumbing, and roofing industries. I'm Corey Barrier, here to guide you through transformative approaches to business and mindset. Each episode will explore unique methods, focusing on identifying and addressing the core challenges in your field. Our goal is to equip you and your team with practical solutions that foster growth and success. So whether you're tuning in for the first time or you're a longtime listener, get ready to dive into a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Let's begin our journey to success together. This is the successful life. It's Corey Barrier. Yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn. Apply it to your life. It's your turn. To live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Three, Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Barrier, and I am here with my man, Mitch Smedley. Did I say it right? Yep, you did. Dude, I usually get everybody's last name wrong, but I <laughs> that was pretty good, and I did not practice that either. So, what's up, Mitch? How are you? Well, I'm doing great. How are you? Good, brother. I'm excited good. about this conversation. So, <clears throat> where's your... Remind me again, the company's located where? We're just outside of Kansas City, so we service the Kansas City metropolitan area. Okay. Uh, small plumbing company that we started in 2020. Man, 2020 was 2020 was interesting for a lot of people, and a lot of people lost their shit, and a lot of people gained a lot of shit. And yeah. I think the people that took action in 2020 are benefiting massively from it now. Yeah, yeah. ours was more of a like. We had, it's something that we wanted to do for a while. So when we made the commitment to do it, we made the commitment to start the company in January and the pandemic was mildly being talked about, but it wasn't anything serious yet. It didn't really get serious until like what, March of that year or something like That's that. Right. And so we made the commitment to start the company. We started preparing our personal finances and I started putting all of the processes together and you know, pounding away on the keyboard every night, building my price book and all of this stuff. And like, it was going to happen. And then the pandemic hits and like came in full force, you know, the, all the kids came home on spring break and then never went back to school that year and all of that. And so everyone, I didn't tell a lot of people that I was starting the company, but everyone that knew was like, are you sure you still want to be doing this? And I'm like, Hey, it's already, the ball's already in motion, right? Like, if I let this be an excuse, why not to start? Then it just adds to a whole nother list of excuses that I've used for the years. So we're just doing this thing. And so we opened our doors August 1st and have never looked back since. So, and we've done a fair, we've done a fair job of growing ever since then. So, 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 all right, you, you mentioned growing. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So we, we started August 1st. I was our only plumber. And my wife was doing, she wasn't even on payroll yet, but my wife was doing all the bookkeeping and all of the, uh, you know, answering of the phones and the scheduling and everything else. And so we ran with me as our only plumber for about eight or nine months, but at month number three, I had paid myself back all of our startup costs to, to create the company. I started our company with about $30,000. And I paid that self or paid that all back to myself within three months. And then four months after that, I was able to buy truck number two with cash because you're only in business for seven months. Banks look at you like you're unemployed. 
So nobody's going to give you a loan. So you're left with buying vehicles with cash. So I bought truck number two with cash. Six weeks later, I bought truck number three with cash and had yet to hire plumber number two. And we don't have it. We didn't have a shop or anything at this time. So my HOA is probably like getting pissed off at me because I've got three Ford transits parked in my driveway and one of them, you know, it has stickers on it. And then I'm running out of the other two were just blank white Ford transits. So, but soon after that, we hired plumber number two. And then soon after that, we hired plumber number three. And then you get that kind of motion going. And then we had a shop. So we were able to kind of, you know, make the neighborhood happy again. But uh, yeah, our first, you know, five months in business to round out that first partial year, we did about $150,000 in revenue. Our first full year in business, so 2021, we did 779 in revenue. And then in 2022, we did 1.295 million. So just a hair under 1.3 million. So, and here we are about halfway through this year. And right now we're pacing for, currently right now we're pacing for about 1.5 but we've got some things in the work that are going to start here in the next few weeks that really should put us to 1.6 to 1.8 by the end of this year. So, so there's a lot of people that listen to this show that are at, you know, a little low below a million. They, you know, try to get one to two. It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard time for a business to get from one to two, two to three to five. Right. So what was the, what was the catalyst that got you from, let's just say, I guess two questions, one, the 150 to 775 and then up to that 1.2, because you had to have done some things differently. Yeah. And that was, a lot of that came in my setup, right? So we made the commitment to start the company in January, but we didn't actually open our doors until August 1st. And it wasn't because we were lazy or pushing the thing out or anything else. It's that I had a lot of processes that I wanted to get like in place before we started the company, you know, how do we run a service call? How do we handle the money? How do we run the schedules? How do we do the business? Right. And so I didn't want to just be winging it, you know, with everything starting a business and the life of an entrepreneur is ad-libbing enough already as it is, but there are some definite things that you can put processes in place. And so when you have a good process in place, Everybody operates smoothly, but then also you can delegate that process to other people and allow for growth, right? So we have a process for how we book service calls. And my wife, you know, took that over and dominated that and did exactly what we needed to. And then we're constantly tweaking the processes along the way. But, um, you know, basically creating a process for somebody else to work within, give them some boundaries and some framework so that they know what success looks like. And then, you know, growth just kind of happens after that because now you can hire additional people to answer the phones and they know how to do it. You can hire additional plumbers and they already know how to run the service call. They already know how to restock the truck. They know how to, you know, do what it takes to get a five-star review and all of that kind of stuff. So, which is, it's kind of cool along the way. We're knocking on the door of 600 Google reviews in three years. Wow. Um, I think we've got 580 as of today. We'll have 600 by August 1st. So we'll get 20 in this next month. But 
at this point too, we still have a 5.0 rating on Google. We're the only company in the Kansas City metro area that has a couple hundred reviews and has a 5.0 rating. So we're, you know, that puts us as the highest reviewed plumbing company in the KC metro area. It's pretty cool. There's some other companies that have, you know, a thousand reviews or a couple thousand reviews, but they've got a 4.6 rating or something like that. So we're the highest rated company. Do you think I could see why you'd be proud of that? But I do have to ask. And I'm just kind of funneling this from information that I've heard from other people. I don't really look at it personally this way. If I see somebody that's got five-star review, I tend to believe they have a, you know, that it's legitimate. And anybody probably that knows you believes it's legitimate. And I believe it's legitimate. Right. But I've heard in the past that it's not bad if you have a couple of bad reviews, assuming you handled it correctly online and yeah. that you answered the question or, or solve the problem, do you think that do you think that ever hurts you having that five star? Because I've heard that. I don't know if it's true. So I've read several studies that actually talk about the most profitable companies have a 4.6 to 4.8 rating. And I can totally 100% believe that and buy into that and subscribe to that idea. And basically, essentially what it is, is the big difference makers between us And those companies would be the price point, right? So that company may be running at a higher price point. And if they're running at a higher price point, they are bound to get a couple of bad reviews specifically around price and price alone, right? And so we are probably just towing the line of crossing over into that. We're not the cheapest company in town, but we're not the most expensive, but we are on the upper half of the pricing for sure. I think our pricing is just under the level that would earn us the 4.8 rating where you would have enough people coming in and saying, you know, the service was great, but the price was just too much or, or whatever the case may be. So I can totally understand the logic behind not actually shooting for a 5.0 rating, shooting for a 4.9 or a 4.8, so long as that the only difference is the price complaints. Well, I think now, as you sat there and said all that, if you think about, you know, if you did have a 4.8, 4.9, whatever it is, and you handled those things correctly, in other words, if it was a price objection or price problem, it's how you as the owner responds to that review And I think that probably shows what kind of business person you are of how you're going to respond to that review. Because, I look, I see people rip their customers' heads off when they do that. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, that's the stupidest thing you could do because it shows people that if they don't like your service, you're going to rip their head off. Nobody wants to do business with somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. We do have two one-star reviews. Actually, we might have three. One of them. We couldn't, I think we do have three one stars, but when you have so many five stars, the math still comes out to an average of a five O rating. And one of the, one of our one stars was from like a house flipper that tried getting out of paying us their $5,000 bill. And so like, we kind of clapped back at them a little bit on their review just because they tried to scam us out of 5,000 bucks. And then another one of our one star reviews was actually, we have a YouTube channel. And this guy, 
I don't know if he was drinking one night or whatever, but like he, he literally put like 150 comments on one of our YouTube videos in a night. Like I woke up to my phone just hot with notifications from YouTube. And it was just this guy, you know, making all these comments. And one of the rules with YouTube, if you have a YouTube channel, one of the rules is you want to interact with every single comment. Um, It helps the algorithms. It helps YouTube kind of pick your video up and everything else. And so here I am interacting with every single one of his 150 comments. And he left us a one-star review on our business page that says the plumber talks back too much. And it was because (laughs) I replied to all of his 150 comments. So (laughs) it it was pretty funny. That is pretty funny. Yeah. We do a very good job of separating our reviews out. So the way that we ask for the review, we kind of split the customers between like five-star customers and then four-star and less. And this isn't through a review filter or anything else. This is just our process for how we get reviews. But basically, if we have a five-star customer, we give them a link to the review. And if we have anything four-star or less, we give them a link to send us an email and address the concerns prior to them leaving a review. And so ultimately the end goal is if we have somebody that's concerned about something, we want to hear about it. And we would prefer to hear about it through a channel that's not a Google review because that way we can actually fix it, right? If you leave me a bad review, there's not a lot I can do. I mean, I can respond as a business owner and all of that stuff, but it makes it difficult to solve your problem, you know? So, you know, when those emails come in, because they absolutely do come in, your inclination is to be like what you had said earlier, to be that business owner that kind of wants to tear their head off. But then you have to pause and think, this is our system working as it's intended. This would have been a bad review, but it's not. It's coming in an email. And if we handle this correctly, now they'll actually go and leave a five-star review. And so that's the way that we approach them. And it works really well. That makes sense. So you mentioned your wife runs some of the business. I mean, I know that working with family members, whether it be immediate family, a brother, a cousin, whoever, can sometimes be a challenge because you can't be the same dude at home as you are at work. And lots of times the, you know, the set, it's hard to separate that, especially when you both work together. So tell me a little bit about, you know, how that process has been. Yeah. So we, it's funny you bring that up. We. We've been married coming up on 16 years here pretty soon. We started the business when we had been married, what, 13 years, I guess. And we'd been married quite a while and, you know, pretty typical marriage, nothing, nothing crazy. I think all marriages have their fair share of like struggles and everything else. But the business kind of highlighted exactly what you pointed out, that you need to be a different person in business than you are at home. And prior to starting the business, my wife never really got to see who I was at work. She would just kind of see the results, but she never really saw the behaviors or the personality of the guy that was at work. And so we started the business and it kind of exacerbated some underlying issues that were already there in our marriage. And a lot of those kind of surrounded around the idea of I'm able to set my emotions aside and just do what it takes to get the job done for work and produce the crazy high results. But in your marriage, it's kind of hard to put your emotions aside, right? I mean, that's the whole reason you're married to them is because you have an emotional attachment. That's right. That kind of highlighted some things where she was able to realize like, okay, 
you're this badass guy at work that can do anything, but yet we're struggling at home. Why can't you be a badass husband? You know, and it just evolved into what became the biggest fight that we ever got in our marriage. I was getting ready to leave for a business conference to, I thought I was going to go to this business conference and learn about business. And literally the night before I'm getting ready to get on a plane, we got into the biggest fight of our marriage and we're not fighters. We, I've, I bet we've only fought four or five times in the whole 15 years we've been married. We're not, you know, we're not physical people. We're not violent. You know, nobody's got an anger problem or anything else, but you put enough emotion into anything and things can kind of spiral out of control. And I lost my temper and I walked away from the situation and walked down the hall to our spare bedroom. And for some reason, I just felt like the door didn't look right without a hole in it. So I put a hole (laughs) in the spare bedroom door and, you know, lost my temper and just punched a hole through the door. And I turned around and my son was standing there. My, at that time he was like nine or 10 standing there and he's crying, you know, he's wondering what's going on. Why are we yelling at each other? Cause it's not like us to do that. And he's never seen me that angry where I'm punching stuff. And so he's crying, asking me to calm down and everything else. And the reason I was going to the spare bedroom was because I was leaving the next day anyway to get on an airplane. So I'm like, well, heck I'll just pack tonight and I'll leave. I'll just get a hotel by the airport and just leave tonight. You know, after a fight like that, you don't want to be around your spouse, you know? So he was my my youngest son was actually the one who convinced me to stay here tonight. You know, he, you know, how kids can be, they assume the worst and chances are his assumptions probably weren't that far off. You know, he's begging me, you know, stay tonight, don't get divorced, you know, don't, <laughs> you know, you know, all this stuff. And so when I got on that plane the next morning, I was pretty sure that I was going to come home to like the beginnings of a divorce. And, you know, the business didn't cause that necessarily. It was all the other underlying issues that the business just kind of highlighted and brought out. And so we, I kind of had to put the business on the back burner after that. And you get to a point and realize like, okay, I need to solve these underlying issues. She needs to solve those underlying issues. We could get divorced and then we're going to go find somebody else. And on a long enough timeline, these same underlying issues are going to present themselves there. And you're right back in the same boat where you were. So why throw away the 13 years for what would eventually be the same problem with somebody else? And so we decided to kind of slow the focus on the business and increase the focus on us. And, you know, we got our marriage back on the right track and we're stronger and better than ever now. It's kind of funny. We're so strong now that it almost makes me like jealous that of my, like, it it makes me regret that we didn't solve these earlier, right? Like we missed out on some hardcore years here where it could have been just freaking amazing if we would have just taken care of these issues before. So, but now, you know, we're solid enough that now I can kind of turn the focus back on the business a little bit. Would you say communication was one of the biggest problems? Yeah, communication for sure. But then the, I think the biggest issue is probably just understanding each other's, you know, love languages, like what she really sees value in from me, right? The prime example, she, it just makes her super happy if I'm like doing housework around the house, right? That's right. just... It's just what it takes for her. And prior to our big blow up, my logic was 
my time's worth more than housework. I'll hire a maid, let the maid clean the house, and I'll will actually make more money if I just stay at work. And it took me until that fight to realize it's not about the money. Right. It's about her seeing me be physically present in the home and contributing to the home, right? And as men, a lot of times we like to think like, why shouldn't, like, she should be happy. I'm providing for the house. I'm buying, like, I bought the house. I bought the cars. I bought all this stuff. And shouldn't that make her happy? Well, maybe not. Like, realistically, she might want to see you vacuum. And as humbling as that may be, if that's what it takes to make her happy, then you get the vacuum out and you vacuum, you know? And everyone's different. I'm not saying that other wives are like that, but, you know, there is kind of a balancing act there where you've got to do things that seem inefficient in your analytical mind, but that seem very beneficial in the emotional side of things. A hundred percent. The five love languages. I think everybody should read that. I've, you know, my wife's is physical touch and yeah. I don't mean like in a sexual way. <laughs> she just wants to know that I'm, pre- you know, like you said, pre- her me being present in our relationship is maybe you holding her hand or whatever it is. And like that stuff seems ridiculous to me, but it's not me, right? It's right. not, it's, I'm not going off my love language because if I, that's what I did for ever. Right. And you know, it's important to, to figure out those things. It's important to dive into that. If people haven't listened or read that book is vitally important. And there's a test. Like you can take a test. that takes 10 minutes yep. and you'll know exactly what, is important to your wife or yourself for that matter. And right. if you can get your spouse to take that test, it's mutually beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times too, as guys, we kind of uh, on that same line, we like to take that line of like, they should be happy because I'm providing for the family. You know, we kind of, that puts us in a mental position where we're starting to resent our wife because they're not happy that we're providing for the family. Right. And so you develop this underlying resentment that's basically all boiled up because you're refusing to like honor the genetic makeup of your spouse. You know, you can't, they, your spouse can't change like what their love language is. They physically can't change it. They can suppress it. They can try to hide it. They can try to ignore it. But all that does is just let it build into a bigger blow up. You know, speaking from experience, having that blow up at year at the tail end of year 14, right before our 15th anniversary, you know, we suppressed that for a long time and it blew up huge. Being able to honor that and respect that and follow through with that is huge. So, and then it's not a, chicken way out. Like you still have to provide for the family. You still have to provide for the house. You still have to do all that, but you have to do this in addition to it. Right. So how did it make you feel that night looking back at your son? Like you just talk, walk us through that. Yeah, that was, you know, that is an eye opening experience, right? Because here I am, I've lost my temper, which I rarely do. I'm a very calm person most of the time. And so here I am, I've lost my temper and it's happening in front of my son. Like, it's one thing to lose your temper, but you know, at the moment it's happening in front of your son. Now your son's learning from you and they're right. not learning from you in the best position. Right. So thankfully one of our older son was not in the house at that time. He was away at the in-laws farm for the week. So thankfully only one son had to see that. 
but you know it's a massive shock to the senses when you turn around and you see that and i mean instantly everything changes it's i don't want to say it's like going into shock but when you turn around and you see that it's like okay now it's like i can it wasn't real when i'm punching a hole through the door you know but now it's real now that he's standing here seeing all this now it's real and you know props to him he sat me on this he got me to sit down on the spare bedroom bed and he got he was like you know take a couple of deep breaths and calm down and like i mean he was a rock star at the role of of getting me to calm down and just kind of pause for a minute that that was really eye-opening to see what kind of example I was just setting for my son in that moment. Where did he learn that the ability to give empathy in that moment? I have no clue. I would love to think that it's because usually I am that person because you like, I don't have a bad temper. I don't have an anger problem or anything else. It's just that one time I lost my cool And so I would love to think that he was basically taking what I've taught him over the years and kind of putting it right back on me at the moment that I needed it, you know? So what do they say that we should learn to take our own advice? We'd be better off if we do that. And that was a moment there where he's basically given me my own advice. This episode of the Successful Life Podcast is brought to you by House Call Pro. Whether you're looking to streamline your operations, reduce paperwork, or boost revenue, Housecall Pro is your all-in-one business solution. Transform your business today with essential tools and support designed to drive efficiency and deliver exceptional customer service. To learn more, click the link in the show notes. Well, you know, I think that, you know, I don't think for sure our children watch everything that we do good bad or indifferent and they pick up on all of it it feels like yeah so so he probably did learn it from you he probably did especially since it's it's your son you know i see my daughter she does all everything my wife does now there are some things that she does like that i you know that she's learned from me but for the most part they're like a spitting image right right Yeah, the apple does not fall far from the tree. That's for sure. So what's what one thing that amazes me about kids is, you know, we got two kids with same parents, right? Me and my wife, we've raised them both the same way. At least we think we have. But yet the kids grow up completely opposite of each other. And it's just wild to watch their personalities develop because they're literally fighting for different corners of the market, so to speak, you know. One kid would be really assertive in an area and the other kids like hyper lazy in that same area. And it's because like, I can't be the assertive one. He's already got the assertive part covered. So I got to be the lazy one, you know, or one kid really excels at sports and the other one like doesn't want to do anything with sports. And they're just, it, they're just constantly searching for the opposite of their brother in, in one area or another. wonder why that is. I don't know. I, the only thing I can think of is that they're there's they're fighting so hard to find their personality and find out who they are that they literally shape their personality off of what's left right if this guy's good at sports well then i can't be good at sports so i'm going to be the other guy you know i'll be good at video games 
or, you know, they're constantly searching for the area to excel in. So, yeah. I think we spend a lot. I know for me, I, I've even spent a lot of my adult life searching for who the hell I am, you know, right. it, because, you know, that we take on personas, personalities. And I, I mentioned this in a post not long ago about, you know, you got to be different people in front of different people. You don't have to be, I suppose, but that's how kind of I've lived my life. And it's really eye opening when you look at that, because like, well, damn, who are you? Well, I'm not really sure. Depends on who I'm around. And so it's been a pretty eye opening experience for me just to recognize that. And it is what it is. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And like for us, especially this last year, I had one kid that was in his last year of middle school and I had another kid that was in his last year of elementary school and there, you know, the rules are different in middle school than in elementary school. And so like what, I mean, I don't know if it's right or wrong. I'm sure I'll find out in a long enough timeline, but like, we don't mind if our kids cuss and mainly because like, I've always had a hard time understanding the logical reasoning behind Cussing is bad until your kid's like 18 and then it's like cuss away. Like what makes that the magic number, right? So we were kind of thinking like, well, if we don't mind that they cuss now, then maybe it just, it'll lose its luster and just like fall off, right? Well, take that and then apply it to them going to school, right? And uh, my youngest kid got in trouble for calling a kid a dumbass in fifth grade. And so we're talking with the principal and we're talking with the teacher about it and his teacher. We're like, so what's up with this whole dumbass thing? And the teacher's like, well, to be fair, that kid was kind of being a dumbass. <laughs> and I'm like, so why is he in trouble? You know, cause what's funny is like you get into middle school, you can call somebody a dumbass all you want. And it's, you know, acceptable. It's acceptable. Like, I mean, it's not encouraged. I'm sure it's right. still frowned upon, but you don't get sent to the principal's office in middle school for calling a kid a dumbass, but you do in fifth grade. So it's made for an interesting dynamic as the kids are trying to develop at the same age, but yet they're at different places in school. And meanwhile, you know, us as parents, nobody knows, like there's no manual to be parents, right? So we're all just doing the best we can and doing what we think is right. So... You know, you're right. And I'll tell you another thing that, and this kind of goes along, like we can't control, even though there are kids, we really don't have any control. Like, I mean, they're going to do whatever they want. Look, I was a terrible kid. My parents try to do whatever they, but if you don't, you know, I don't necessarily let my kid cuss in front of me, but like I'll read her text messages and she cusses like crazy in her text. Like it is what it is. Like, yeah. If you're anything like me, my parents would tell me not to do something and I would go just as hard to go do that thing. Yeah. And that was part, that's part of like why we were okay with the cussing and stuff like that was kind of on the same line of, and not to say that the kids run the house, but like, if you tell them no on, on arbitrary issues, like there are some absolute things where it's a total no, but on arbitrary things that don't really have a, a basis or a reasoning to them. Well, then they're going to go just as hard to defy you in that area and do it behind your back, right? On the arbitrary, things like cussing and stuff like that. It's like, it's just a social taboo. Like, if you say, gosh, darn it, or gosh, damn it, it's the same thing. It's just, you were trying to make a PC version of what is a cuss word. So essentially, it's the same. And 
we just, that was not a hill we were willing to die on. And so we, you know, let them have that one. Yeah. I mean, it it makes sense. I mean, again, like I'll ask you this, you know, as far as social media is concerned with your kids, tell me again, their ages. So I've got one that's 14 and I've got one that is 11. So my, my, our kid is 14. Yeah. And, you know, social media is a really interesting thing at that age because I mean, you know, not to bring up a terrible subject and I won't mention any names, but anybody listening to this, it's probably going to know exactly what I'm talking about. But <laughs> like, if you look at when people make mistakes, let's uh-huh. just take people in our industry that make mistakes and people want, people put that out on social media, the mistake that they've made, yeah. if it's bad enough, and sometimes it is bad enough. People rip your ass apart. Oh, and sometimes yeah. it's deserved. Some, yeah. I mean, or it feels that way. Now, we're probably only getting one side of the story with some of it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I can't imagine getting shredded like some, like I've seen some people recently yeah. get destroyed. Yeah. I mean, destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I have a very intentional way that I run my social media and I'm very transparent with that with my children. My oldest son does have a Facebook and of course he's got Snapchat. That's how they communicate with all their friends. Right. And he's got, you know, Instagram and TikTok and all that kind of stuff. But he does have a Facebook. And so now he gets to see a lot of what I'm putting out there and he gets to see that holy cow, dad's the same person on Facebook that he is in real life. And, you know, a lot of people treat their social media like it's a highlight reel. Like we're only going to show the best of the best of the day in the life or the best of the year, you know, whatever. And I'm pretty transparent. I try to show everything. And I try to be very transparent with my thoughts and my opinions and all of that stuff without being divisive, right? So a lot of people use social media just to be divisive. And so you know, he gets to see that. And so that's probably one area where I don't have any concerns with them on social media because they're getting to see from the example of somebody who's doing it pretty well. And they get to see the full gamut because we don't hide anything from them. If we're having a struggle with an employee or something like that, they get to hear that part of the conversation too. And, and they get to see the full side of everything. And so they see that there are no hidden agendas. They see that like, if we're struggling with an employee, it's because we genuinely care about them and we're frustrated that they're not doing as good as they could, you know, or whatever the case may be. It's never with selfish intent or anything else. So that helps a ton in the social media department that they get to see that transparency. And it's not about just flashing dollars or showing off or whatever the case may be. So that's interesting. That's interesting. So do you, you know, how do you, do you separate your employees from your social media or do they all follow you? In other words, if let's say you are having a struggle with an employee yeah, and you go on and you're transparent about the struggle and they know it's, if they're following you, they know it's them, right? Yeah. How do you handle that? Well, so being genuine about the whole thing helps a ton for sure. So I, you know, don't have a hidden agenda. 
the way that like the way our company succeeds is I view our company like it's a three-legged stool. And uh, so we've got one leg that's the employees, we've got one leg that's the customer, and we've got one leg that's the business. And if you chop down any one of those legs, the stool is going to fall over, right? So if we do something that does not benefit all three, then it doesn't happen in our business. We simply don't do it. And so we use that three-legged stool analogy as we're doing a lot of, of you know, R&D. Should we do this? Should we do this idea? Should we look at this idea or whatever? We apply it to all three. And if it benefits all three, then we'll do it. And so the guys know that I have their back with anything. And, you know, I may not share on the social media per se issues that I'm having with employees, but I might share some of those issues on the podcast yeah. that we have just because that's a little bit more of a tailored audience to people that would understand that a little bit better. You know, half of your audience on social media doesn't care about what you're talking about. So, right. but also too, I'm reluctant to share any of that stuff until it's come to completion. Mainly in one of my rules for social media is trying to extract the lesson that I've learned from something. So if I'm going through something, and I haven't yet learned the lesson for why I'm going through it, I'm probably not posting about it yet. Because if you post about a negative situation without the lesson attached to it, well, then you're just complaining. And right. nobody wants to hear that. No. So making sure that you refrain from posting or talking about that until you've learned the lesson or it's come to completion, and then now you can post about the whole thing you know, it started with this and it ended with this. And so the lesson is, you know, do this or don't do this type of thing. That's a whole lot different post than, oh, one of my guys is being lazy. You right. know, it, you know it, it's a whole different gamut than if I go full completion and I'm like, well, he wasn't giving us all at work because I was presenting myself in this way and he didn't think I was caring about him enough. And so I had to fix the way that I was addressing him and now he's given us all again. So the lesson is I have to do better at taking care of my guys, right? Right. That's a whole different post than, oh, my guy's lazy, you know? Yeah. And so making sure to come at it with that whole approach is huge. And when I, you know, as I'm trying to teach my children about being with teams of people and managing people and everything else, granted, they're only 11 and 14, but it's still, it's never too early to get that exposure to you know, how to lead people and all of that stuff. So very rarely, if ever, am I just simply griping at my kids about one of my guys. I'm usually being very transparent and I'm saying like, he feels this way because of this. And so I've got to get him to realize this so that he now feels this way type of thing. Sure. So do you look at your employees as, I I, I think that, a lot of guys look at their employees second to the customer. And I think, you know, my belief is that your employees really should be as the owner, your number one focus yep. because they're taking care of the customers, right? If you pissed yeah. off an employee, they're going to carry that into the next call or carry that into the day or the week or whatever it is. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. My view is that you should treat your employees exactly how you expect them to treat your customers. And if you treat your employees poorly, they are treating your customers poorly. Absolutely. If you are treating your employees in a manner that you care about them and you're going out of your way to support them 
and you're doing what it takes to make them happy, then they are also going to be carrying on those attributes to your customers. And there's always outliers, right? Like employees have bad days and I could be treating them amazing and he still you know, has a bad customer service interaction with a customer. The same goes the other way. He could be delivering amazing service to a customer and I have a bad day and I say something I shouldn't have said or I behave in a way that I shouldn't have behaved or you know, whatever the case may be. But in general, if you treat your employees the way that you treat your customer or the way that you want them to treat your customers, it works out really well. And I kind of view it like I, I don't have customers. My customers are my employees. Their customers are the actual customers of the business, right? right? And so when you separate it that way, it really changes the game because if you don't separate it that way, then you're in this position of, I told you how to do this. Why didn't you do this? Oh, if you want something done right, I just got to do it myself type of thing. Whereas when you create that separation, and now I know the only way to deliver amazing customer service is through the employees instead of over them, then really changes your focus on how you handle your employees. So I had one more question for you, you know, to sort of to this point, you're a military guy, right? <laughs> or no? I tried. That's actually <laughs> how I got started as a plumber. So I went to college. I went to K State. I went to university for six months or for a semester, and didn't like it. wasn't getting very good grades, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. I just didn't like it, right? So I came back and I went to community college for a semester. The grades improved because the class sizes got smaller, but I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I'm like, well, heck, I don't want to keep wasting money at college and not know what I want to do. So I'll enlist in the into the Navy. And after five years in the Navy, maybe then I'll know what I want to do and then I can get back on the college bandwagon. So I enlist into the Navy. I ship out on July 5th. I, I remember spending the night in the hotel on the 4th of July. And I, I was at a hotel down by the Kansas City airport, several floors up. So I was able to see fireworks all night out of my, out of my window. And I ship out on July 5th. My third day in basic training they found me unresponsive on a sidewalk. I had a, a cardiac event happen that made me pass out, basically. And I woke up in the hospital. And once they understood what the event was and everything else, they were like, well, you can't be here with this. And so they sent me home. And they did what they call and they gave me the option. They said, do you want a, a medical discharge or do you want an entry level medical separation? And so once I understood the difference, the entry-level medical separation is like you were never here type of thing. It's basically the same as like you not passing your physical to get into the Navy. Right. And so I said, yeah, you know, I, obviously I don't want a medical. I was here for three days, didn't even complete basic training. Let's go with the entry-level. And so we did that. Took him a couple of weeks to get me home. By the time I got home, it was too late to get into another semester of school. So I just, a buddy of mine was working at a plumbing company and he said, Hey, we're busy. Come work with us. And then you can go to school next semester. And I've been a plumber ever since. It's probably a smart move. Yeah. Kind of, kind of fortunate the way all that happens. So sometimes yeah. when you wake up on a sidewalk or wake up in a hospital after being found unresponsive on a sidewalk, it's actually a good thing. Well, look, a lot of people go to college and at the end of the day, especially this day and time, I, you know, Going to trade school, one, if you're, you know, and I don't know if you actually went to trade school, it doesn't matter if you did or didn't, but 
when people are trying currently, when people or kids are trying to make a decision whether they want to go to college or, or go to a trade school, going to a trade school is pretty, pretty, it's a pretty smart idea. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't have debt, you get paid, and you continue to get paid once you get out without that debt. And yeah. you've got something that you can do all your life if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. The day you graduate, or, you know, the day somebody else would graduate college, a person who's been in the trades over that same amount of time is about $250,000 ahead of the person that went to college. And that's based off of the, you know, average debt that you you have carrying with you when you come out of college versus the average income that person in the trades has made over the five years that the other person was in college, right? And so then the challenge becomes keeping that distance because assumably so the person that's coming out of college may be eligible for higher wages. So the tradesman now owes it to themselves to continue learning and to continue finding ways to add value to their employer so that they continue to see an increase in wage as well. But Great point. yeah, I mean, people in the trade, it's not uncommon at all for people in the trades to be making six figures a year. You absolutely don't have to go to college to be making six figures. So if you can get into the trades, it's a great way to go. I think so too. Yeah. Well, look, Mitch, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on and sharing all this. I mean, we went all over the place a little bit, but I think <laughs> yeah. it was important. Where can people find you? Yeah, uh, I'm most active on Facebook. You can just find me at Mitch Smedley on Facebook. I've got the, you know, I did the whole pay for the blue check verification thing. Just because we have enough other things going on with with our podcast and our YouTube channel and some other things that we have that I didn't want to I didn't want anybody to have the ability to mimic who I was and try to take advantage of people. So you just search up Mitch Smedley on Facebook, find the one with the blue check, and that's me. And we have a podcast as well. It's called The Void. You can find it on Facebook at, at podcast the void. And basically that podcast just centers around somebody who is currently an employee in the trades that is wanting to start their own business. We help them cross the void from employee to self-employed. You know, there's a bunch of people, a bunch of places out there, a bunch of people out there that will help you take your existing business to the next level. There are very few organizations that help you bring your business into existence. And that's kind of the nature of that podcast. So yeah. Those are probably my two most popular channels there. I like it. Well, yeah. Mitch, I appreciate you, my friend. Yeah, you too as well. It's been fun talking. Yes, sir. Thank you for tuning into the Successful Life Podcast. We hope today's insights have ignited your passion and provided tools to shape your leadership journey. Remember, greatness is a journey, not a destination. Continue your pursuit by exploring more resources and insights over at coreybarrier.com. Until next time, keep leading, keep learning, and keep striving for excellence. Stay inspired and see you on the next episode.